morning. Let us read the Word of God, John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had not come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, again he said to them, do you know who, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, You ought also to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the one I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss 
to know which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter, Peter jested to him and said to him, Tell us who it is to whom he is speaking. He leaned back thus on the Lord's bosom and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had money, the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. morning. Welcome to Grace Fellowship Church. Um, I've been asked by the mission team here at the church to give you all an update on uh, a family that our church started supporting a couple of months ago, the Petersons. They are about nine weeks away from the birth of their fourth child, and Elizabeth is asking not only for prayer for that pregnancy, uh, but also she's been suffering with anemia. And so, you know, they're really trying to adjust to, you know, make sure that, you know, her hemoglobin and, you know, her blood count's not too low because that's not a real healthy thing, especially, you know, for babies and moms. Um, so prayer for that. They have also moved from 78% of their support to about 94% in a month. And, you know, it was sort of interesting, you know, God's timing. You know, Andy Malcolm had asked me, like Friday to give an update, and so I was thinking, well, I'm just going to have to go back through my email list, and you know, I think they sent out something at the beginning of December, uh, but lo and behold, there was an email like Friday afternoon from them. So, I mean, this is like hot off the press kind of stuff from them. Um, you know, they are thinking about trying to buy a plane ticket for around May or June. The mission uh, agency that they're with, InterServe, uh, they're going to be going to North Africa. If you want more specific information, please talk to me or one member of the mission team. Uh, the 
Tim and Melissa Pitts, Bill White, my wife and I, Andy Malcolm. We would love to give you a boatload of more information, but, you know, we don't want to give specifics, you know, where it's going to be out on the web and that kind of stuff because they're going to be in a pretty sensitive area. And so they're hoping and praying that, you know, their organization requires them to have 100%, that they'll get that soon, be able to, you know, have a safe, healthy baby, and then be able to go to the field. And that's really, since we've reorganized the mission team here at church, that's really the first family that, that God led to us and called us as a body to come alongside and, and begin to support prayerfully and financially. So that's the Peterson family. Joel and Elizabeth and their, I can't remember their children's names. I apologize. So anyway, that's uh, sort of the missions moment. And men's ministry moment, we just had a fabulous retreat. Thank you guys that were able to go. Thank you, Joy, for leading the worship. Kevin Jordan, the guy that spoke, is from a congregation in Burlington, North Carolina, did an outstanding job walking through the goodness of God with us. We're going to be starting a men's Bible study a week from tomorrow night, Monday night, 6.30 to 8 o'clock. We're going to be going through the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. So a couple of advertisements that day. So. Um, I am no good with electronic devices. They, like, fall apart in my hand. So when I was getting ready for this, I, I asked my wife, I said, um, do you all know what this is? What do you say? Bluetooth. And thankfully, this one doesn't work anymore. Because if it stayed in my hand for too long, it probably would quit working anyway. Um, and, you know, this curious little device, and I haven't been out for too many years, and I used to wear one. But now my car has got, like, Bluetooth in the car, so I don't, don't really use that as much. And one morning when I was walking out to the garage, I, I'd put it on, and But as I'm walking out, <clears throat> I go down the steps into the garage. There's a there's a little voice in my in my ear that says "lost connection." You ever heard that before? Lost connection. Interestingly enough, when I turn around, I'm walking inside, and it's not there. It's connected. I don't even need to know where my phone is because I lose stuff. But the beauty of one of these little gizmos is that I can access my phone from a distance. I don't even need to know where the sucker is in the house. It might be in a pile of clothes, in my bed, under a pillow. I can make phone calls. I can check messages. Because I'm connected to my phone through my Bluetooth, but there is a certain threshold beyond which I go that I'm no longer connected with my cell phone. So there's, a, there's, a, there's like an inscribed area that as long as I am in the middle of those boundaries and I'm standing and, and I don't go around that area, that threshold, I am connected. When I step beyond that, I'm not connected anymore. And I realized one day that that's how I approach my relationship with God. Life becomes, for me, an inscribed area, a boundary demarcated by which I can clearly see where God is and where he's not. And the problem with that is that it's often based on how I feel. 
I'm not comfortable with this, but I'm comfortable with that. I don't like these people, but I like those people. I don't like this particular environment, but I like that particular environment. I'm secure with this, but I'm not secure with that. I'm familiar with this. I feel safe with that, but I don't feel safe in this environment or that environment. That's beyond where I feel connected with God. It's beyond where I, I can tell where all the boundaries are and I understand the lay of the land and, and, I, and I know where my feet are safe and where it's not. And, and, and I know all the people that are coming and going and, and, and I feel safe and secure and I can decide who comes and who goes and what God's going to do and what He's not going to do. I like that style of music, but not that kind. I want to be part of this kind of church, but not that kind. I like this style of preaching, but I don't like that. God don't ask me to go here or talk to those people or go here and do that because that's beyond the boundaries where I feel connected. Life can become a series of trying out different things. Yeah, I'm going to try this career, that career. I'm going to try this relationship, that relationship. I'm going to try this philosophy, that philosophy, this hobby, that hobby, until I decide what I'm comfortable with and who I'm comfortable with and where I'm comfortable. Because it's all about me feeling connected. It's all about me feeling like, you know, God is out there and I'm sort of in here and God's, I sort of know who God is and where God's at and what He's going to do. What is the problem with that? First problem is it places me at the center of the circle instead of God. My preferences, my comfort zones, I'm at the center of that. The second problem with that is that life is a line and it's not a circle. Not to disparage the, you know, wanting everybody to communicate in circles. Different metaphor. Your life is not a series of repeated events that just goes on and on and on. We get up, we go to work, we eat lunch. Come home, maybe watch football, some sporting event, go to our kids' event. We go to bed, and what do we do the next day? Get up and do the same thing again with God. Pray, give money, go to church, feel guilty on occasion, celebrate Easter, Christmas, and do the same thing over and over and over again. I'm not saying these are bad things. God doesn't want us to stay in one spot from where He meets us and He has a place that He wants to move us to. God is much bigger than living our lives in circles and boundaries and repeated events. He wants us to step out of the boat from the sermon a few weeks ago. He wants us to go into the amusement park and ride all the loops. He doesn't want us to just stay in our own little area where we feel safe and we feel secure and life is predictable. Our God is creative. He is adventuresome. Our God, in C.S. Lewis's words, never does the same way twice. Never does the same thing the same way twice. Most of the world views life as the same old, same old. There's even two major world religions, Hinduism and Buddhism, 
that teach that the universe is eternal and there's this cycle of death and rebirth that is just, and there's no beginning and there's no end and, and so you just sort of exist. Christianity is completely different from that. There's a definite beginning point, there is a middle point, and there is an end point. John 13, 1 states emphatically, time of the Passover, Jesus knew that the hour had come to return to his Father. Do you know what time it is in your life? Do you know what hour it is? You ever thought about that? Jesus knew the hour had come. Nelson, you want to put pictures up? The next one. I was studying last night in Facebook. You know, sometimes I'll pull a little fast one on you and it'll pop something up, you know, and says, memory from the past. So I start delving into all these pictures. That little girl is here this morning, but that little girl is not that same little girl that's in those pictures. I'm walking uh, in the dining hall yesterday at the place we had the retreat, and as I'm walking past, there's this guy that walks past, and he says, Good day, young man. I'm getting close to 50. This guy's calling me a young man. You know, I'm older than I was when that picture was taken. My life's moving on. My life is not static. It doesn't stay in one spot. But the way we live our lives, we pretend like we got all the time in the world and, and time is infinite. And you have one less or five or ten minutes less in your life than you did than when I started this sermon. The people that you're sitting beside today in this church are different than the people that were here three to six months ago. Your life is moving on. It's not staying still. It's not static. It's not predictable. It's not safe. What does Scripture say in the book of James? Life is like a what? Vapor. Amplified Bible says it's like a wisp of steam from a, from a coffee pot. You have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. Are you so caught up in the day-to-day, -day, in the moment, in living life that you don't know what time it is? Jesus is focused. You know, the scripture moves on in, in verse 2. And it says that, sort of setting the stage, you know, the evening meal was in progress and the devil was already putting in Judas's chariot to betray Jesus. And Jesus is sitting there and there's all this activity going on. You know, there's food being passed and, you know, the disciples are talking to each other and maybe they're laughing and maybe they're telling stories and, you know, and Jesus is, is focused and maybe he's catching bits and pieces of conversation. But then in verse 3, it, it sort of brings it all down. And it says, He knew that the Father had put all things into His hands, that He was come from God and He was returning to God. That, My friends, that is a line. That is not a serpent. That is a beginning point of Jesus' earthly life. Came from God. Middle tense, present tense, God put all things, and he was returning to God. Your life is a line. It is not a circle. It is not a series of random, repeated, 
events that you have control over and that you decide and that God is happy with you just doing the same old, same old. It's a line. Fascinatingly enough, the verse doesn't start at the beginning. It starts in the middle. The focus is on the present reality. And the present reality that Jesus is aware of is that God puts and God places. God is present in the present tense. And it's God who decides who puts and who places. God puts people in your life. God places events and situations that you are in the middle of and that God is right there with you. He sends people to you and He calls you into situations and and He enables and equips you in the present time. Where are you right now in the present tense? Are you aware that God is with you and intimately involved with you and He puts and He places and that He's there? Who or what defines your purpose? Who or what gives you meaning? Jesus' sense of himself in the present tense was all related to his Father and the reality that God had put all things. Are you aware of God in the present? Are you aware of who and what God is placing in your life? As a believer, you don't belong to yourself. If you follow Jesus, you don't belong to yourself. You know, I grew up in little country churches and... You know, one of the old jokes that I remember one of the preachers used to say at a revival or something said there was a family driving around and, you know, and they noticed it was Sunday morning and they were going through a little town and they decided, oh, man, we better find a church to go hang out with at Sunday morning. Saw a guy walking down the street, pulled up beside of him, rolled the window down and said, uh, you know, we're looking for a church. You know, can you tell us about a church in this town? The guy scratched his head and he said, well, there's this church around the corner there and that's the Smith's Church. And then there's a church over on this other street, and I think that's the Williams' church. And then I think this church a couple streets over is the Joneses' church. I don't know that God's got a church in this town. Whose church is this? Is it your church? Your family's church? Scripture says that God puts, God places, God directs. It's all about Him. It ain't about you. It ain't about me. It ain't about us. It's all about God. Because He puts and He places. Jesus knew that He was come from God. All of us want to know where we come from. You have a story about your family and where you came from. Every culture on the planet has a story about where they come from. It's instinctive. It's pervasive. It's something that that is part of all of us. Does evolution, a blind, random process, explain where you come from? Does a bunch of people in our society. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I am remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wondrous and I know them very well. We watch lots of documentaries. Um, one of the ones on Netflix that we watched probably about a year ago was called Penguin Post Office. You guys have probably never heard of it. We find all kinds of bizarre, interesting things. Um, and it's about the southernmost post office in the world, which is somewhere in Antarctica, and 
the British government opens it up, I don't know, three, four months out of the year, and there's people that live down there, and there's cruise ships that come by, and, you know, and they can go in there and buy a postcard, and it's stamped like South Pole, and, you know, they can send it to their friends and family. And, you know, the other interesting part of the documentary is there's a, a, a penguin colony there, Gen 2 penguins. I never even heard of the Gen 2 penguins. You can look it up. Learn all about it. And so the documentary goes between the post office and you know, what the penguins are doing. And one of the humorous things that they try to do to make it interesting is they try to show how some of the penguin behavior mirrors human behavior. And, you know, the, there's a couple of different examples they use. I won't go through all of them. But, you know, one of them, for example, is that, you know, there's, you know, there's no wood, there's no straw, there's no grass. So what do the penguins have to use to build their nest with? There's rocks. And so, and it's usually the guy penguins. Mother Nature's got a way of distributing out. And among penguins, you know, the, you know, the guy's the one that's expected to, you know, build the nest out of these rocks. So there's a male penguin, you know, that shows him and he's going around getting pebbles and rocks and putting them there and building a nest. And then there's a, one of his neighbors that waits till he's gone. And then you see this little penguin guy scurry over, grab a rock out of his neighbor's nest and take it back and put it in his nest. It's sort of humorous. They give a couple of less humorous examples. But then they show this juvenile penguin. Not a little baby one like this, not a big one in a tuxedo, but you know, the little gray guy walking along, minding his own business, just waddling along. And all of a sudden, there's two or three adult penguins jump out of nowhere, start pecking and pecking, pecking. And suddenly, there's like a whole mob of adult penguins attacking this juvenile penguin, and the penguin's actually laying there bleeding to death on the ground. And they keep attacking it until it dies. We look at that and go, well, that's creepy. But nobody says, what a group of immoral penguins. We've got to arrest them. We've got to put that on the evening news about how cruel they are and how mean they are and how, you know, they sort of speculate. They have no idea why they do that. If there was a three-year-old child that was walking through your neighborhood and there was like three or four adults jumped out of nowhere with clubs and started beating them to death, there would be all kinds of ramifications from that horrific event. There's a fundamental difference between you and animals. The Bible says you're made in the image of God. You come from God. You have a spirit that indwells you. You have a Father in heaven that is intimately involved in where you came from. Is intimately involved in where you are at. Jesus knew that his life is a line and not a circle. He knew that the life has a beginning, a middle, present tense, and an ending. Jesus knew that he was returning to God. That is your destiny. That is where you were created for. You were called by God to take a journey through this world that leads to another. Let me say that again. You were created by God to take a journey through this world that leads into another. The great story, God's story, outlined in the Bible, heralds a grand creation, a tragic fall, the relentless pursuit of God's love, and the final culmination before the throne of God. That story is all the way through the pages of Scripture. Call of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you in Genesis 12. 
Exodus, God tells the children of Israel, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The church, we are the body of Christ, a kingdom of priests in the book of Peter. And around the throne of God, there's tribes from every language group, nation, and people praising God. It's a line. It's not a circle. Your life is not a circle. It is a line. We were made to step out of the boat. We were made to ride the loops in the amusement park. We and every human being that is made and created in the image of God were made to move from where God finds us to where God decides that we are to be. God puts and God places. We don't. Jesus knew that his beginning was defined by God, his present tense was defined by God, and that where he was returning to God. He knew where he was from, as we'd say in the hills. He knew where he was at, and he knew where he was going. What a comforting thought. That there's no place that my God is not. He's with you when you're getting it right. He's with you when you're screwing it up. He's with you in the morning, he's with you at lunchtime, and he's with you when you go to bed at night. He's with you when your life is wide open and it's all green lights and it's 100 miles an hour and life is good. He's with you when you've screwed it up and when you're not even sure life is worth living. There is no place in your life that God is not. My identity, my life are not ultimately tied to people, places, things, experiences. It doesn't have to be about wandering through life, trying to set the boundaries myself, trying to figure out where my comfort zone is and, and you know, and where I feel connected to God and where I don't. And I'm not going to go here because I'm not comfortable and I'm not going to go there. I'm not inscribed by a boundary that I decide I can move with confidence through this life from where my God finds me to where he wants me to be because there's no place that he's not. Verses 4 through 5. Jesus begins to watch the disciples speak one of the lowest, dirtiest jobs a servant could do. And how does he begin preparing for this? He says he takes off his outer garments. You realize there's all kinds of things got you weighed down? All kinds of things that metaphorically God is asking you to take off and hang up. Jesus had to lay aside his outer garments in order to get in a position to where he could wash the disciples' feet. God is wanting you to get in a better position so that you're more ready and available to serve him. And so you've got to ask yourself, what's God asking me to lay aside? What is he asking me to take off and hang up and step away from? What sins is he wanting me to confess? What changes to my schedule do I need to do so I'm more available for him? How do I need to reprioritize you know, what my family does on weekends and during the week and how I spend my money and how we plan our vacations and how I do my job? What is he asking me to lay aside so that I'm in a better position, I'm less encumbered? 
Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Will you lay aside your sin, your comfort, your home, your safety, your peace, your desires in order to fulfill the master's call on your life? Will you get out of the boat? Will you go wherever God is leading you? Now, for some of us, getting out of the boat is just calling that relative we haven't talked to in 10 years. It may be carving out a little bit of time to actually spend with God each day. It may be, you know, getting involved in some ministry here at church or, you know, maybe volunteering at something. It may be uh, witnessing to the, to the guy or gal that's in the cubicle beside of us at work. For others, it may be, you know, going out into the community more. Or it may be going somewhere overseas. But the problem is, is God decides, God puts, God places, not you. You don't get to decide, well, I'm not comfortable with that, and I just don't want to go here, and I just don't want to do that. And because you're not yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit's work in your life if you approach life that way. So I don't want everybody to think, well, you've got to go to Africa to serve God. But you've got to move. You've got to move if you're going to follow the Master. You can't stay rooted in one spot because life is a line and it's not a circle. And it's not a, a boundary that I can just decide and I can just stay in. Peter just discourses with Peter, verses 6 through 10. We've been, you might think this is sort of pick on Peter month, but you know, I love Peter because you know, he makes a lot of mistakes and I make a lot of mistakes. He sees what Jesus is doing. I mean, read the verses. You know, Jesus is, you know, taking off his outer garments and he's getting water and he's moving from one disciple to the next to the next and he finally comes to Peter. What's Peter's question? Are you going to wash my feet? Now, what kind of question is that? Peter's stupid. Is he blind? Has he got no idea what's going on? He's trying to put a limit on what Jesus is going to do for him. He's trying to place a boundary on the creator of the universe. Who knows better what you need in your life, you or God? Who knows better how your life should go, you or God? But our first reaction with God when he's calling us to do something is we want to put limits on you. You sure you want me to go there? You sure you want me to talk to those people? You sure you want me to put a little more money? You sure you want me to do this? You want me to do that? We try to set the limits because we're so used to a Bluetooth. I'm not comfortable with that. Ain't no way that can happen. That just ain't going to happen. Because we've got our boundaries. We live in a circle instead of a line. Another possibility of this. You know, some think Peter was too proud, but I often wonder if it's not the opposite. See, Peter was a brusque kind of guy. I imagine that he cussed some. Uh, you know, he was probably one of the guys that you know probably continued to do some rough stuff from time to time, or his attitude even after he was walking with Jesus. And so when he sees Jesus you know, moving from disciple to disciple to disciple, and he finally comes to the feet of Peter and he wants to wash his feet, Peter feels ashamed. Well, like, surely, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. You know who I am. 
You know what I've done. You know where I've been. You know what thoughts go through my mind. You're going to wash my feet? How many of us, we just feel like that God's got no idea who I am or what I've done or what I continue to do until I die? Good news is God loves dirty, smelly feet. He loves dirty, smelly feet. And he loves to take those feet and tenderly wipe them and wash them and keep working with them. And he wants to do the same for you. If you'll let him. If you'll let him. Do you feel too dirty for God to use you? Do you resist what he wants to do in your life because you don't feel worth his time? God loves to clean up dirty people, repair broken spirits and dreams. He loves to make bent things in people straight. Are you too scared of what people might really think to get out of the boat or to go and ride the loop-de-loops in the amusement park? Verse 7, what I am doing to you now you won't understand, but later you will. We like a road map. I don't know everything's going to happen throughout my day. I want to know, you know, the, the pluses and minuses, the pros and cons. Is it going to work? Is it not going to work? How much of my time and energy am I going to invest? I want to have it all marked out before me before I'm even willing to step out of the boat. But the way God works is He puts something or a person or a situation right in front of you or a scripture. And His question to you is, are you going to be faithful to take that one first step? Because I'm not going to show you the road map. I'm not going to show you the end result. I'm not going to show you where this is all going to lead to until you start following me. One of the first commands he gave the disciples was follow me. Follow me. It's a line. It is not a circle. And it's God who puts and God who places. And if you are not willing to to follow Him in obedience, then you may never get to see where He's leading you or what He can make happen or how it's all going to work out. Because you're, you're, you're trying to control things and you're trying to decide where I'm comfortable and where I'm safe and where I'm secure and where life is predictable. God wants to reach into the circle that we are in, the bubble that we have cocooned and encapsulated ourselves in and rescue us. Bring us, lift us, call us out of where we have decided we will stay, where we are comfortable, to where he wants us to go. Verses 8 through 10. I love Peter. <laughs> you will never wash my feet. If I don't, then you know, you're done. We're finished. Well, in that case, you know, wash my head and my hands. You know, give it all to me. How many of us are like that with God? We don't pay attention to what he's showing us. You know, we just sort of get an emotional kind of response and we're like, lay it all on me. And then we get disappointed and we're like, no, I don't want to have nothing to do with it. And we go from one extreme to the other. No, you're not going to wash me at all to lay it all on me. Just dump the, dump the water on my head. And Jesus is trying to get him to focus. He's trying to get him to pay attention. He's trying to teach him something. God's trying to teach you something. He's trying, to, he's trying to get you to focus on something or someone or some situation or something that he's wanting you to respond. Verses 12 through 20. <coughs> the whole point 
of washing the disciples' feet was to minister to them in a profoundly humble way and then to invite them to do the same. Say it again. The whole point of washing the disciples' feet was to minister to them in a profoundly humble way and then invite them to do the same. Verses 15, 16, and 17, definitely a lesson in humility and how the disciples are supposed to relate to each other. You know, that you know they're not supposed to be thinking, well, I'm more important than you, and, you know, and the whole dynamic of the, you know, the really person in the kingdom of God that's at the top is the servant of all. But I think there's a more basic lesson here. Discipleship. It goes something like this. I, the master, behave and act this way, you, the disciple, behave and act this way, then you, the disciple, behave towards and teach others to behave and act like this. So you move from the master to the disciple, and then the disciple goes and, guess what? Disciples others. It's movement. It's a line. It's not a circle. It's a path. It's a journey that's got a beginning point, a middle point, and an end point to it. God always sends out His disciples. God is always sending out His disciples from where He meets you to where He wants you to be. You cannot follow Jesus without moving somewhere, somehow. And again, I'm not talking geographically. It may be attitude-wise. It may be geographically. It may be a bunch of different things. Only you and God know that or some people close to you. We have a beginning point created in the image of God, a present reality. And an ultimate reality, returning to God and around the throne of God. We were made to get out of the boat, do the loops in the park. Life is a line and not a circle. And then verse 17, if you do these things, you will be blessed. So many people looking for the blessing of God and the activity of God and where's God at. And you don't get to see the blessing till you step out of the boat. You don't get to see what God's doing unless you play in the game, and you don't get to see the entire panorama of the entire amusement park unless you're willing to move and ride the roller coasters with the loops and go the places God's calling you to. It's only then that you see where the road's going. It's only then that you see the blessing. It's only then that you can clearly see the work of God and experience God. Last thought on both Peter and Judas. Do you realize both of these guys betrayed Jesus in this passage? Or they're going to? And in fact, how many traitors are in the room with Jesus? If you were to count them. Probably 10, 11, 12 of them at least. Only the apostle John was at the foot of the cross. All of them turned their back on Jesus and run. So what makes the difference between all these traitors are between the two most famous ones. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Both of them were with Jesus for three years. Both of them walked. Both of them were discipled by Jesus. He washes both of their feet. 
You know, that's a profound lesson for you right there. Jesus washes the feet of men that he knew were going to betray him. So what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Ultimately, one of them repented and the other did not. Ultimately, one accepted Jesus washing his feet and the other didn't really get it, didn't really accept it. Ultimately, one of them realized that his life was aligned, that God was trying to get him, Jesus was trying to get him to move from who he was to who God wanted him to be. One of them realized that just as I have shown you this and I've washed your feet, you need to wash other people's feet. There's movement, there's direction, there's purpose. Peter accepted the identity that Jesus gave him. He accepted letting the Son of God wash his feet. Peter accepted the Son of God ministering to him. Peter accepted the Son of God as the Lord of his life. He realized that Jesus was his Lord at the beginning of the day, the middle of the day, and the end of the day. Peter let Jesus disciple him to pass on Jesus, his spiritual DNA, to him, Peter. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter begins to pass that on to other people. There is no place that you can go that God is not. There are no boundaries with God. Don't set your own boundaries. Let God decide who you are, where you will go, and what you will do. God is an ever-present help and an ever-present Savior. 2011, uh, probably one of the lowest points in my life. I'm not going to go into the details about it. Marriage wasn't where it should be. I wasn't where I should be. The kids weren't where they should be. A whole bunch of things were spiraling out of control. Um, and, you know, we, one of the things we do with our daughters is we, you know, when they're getting ready to graduate high school, we have four of them. You know, we take them on a trip to Europe, and Catherine was going to be graduating in 2011. So Verinka and Catherine and I and my mother and her husband went on a trip to Italy. And so we went around Italy and saw different things. And towards the end of our trip, we went to Florence. And there's a, there's a museum there called the Academy. And Academy is a very small museum, and there's basically only, only one reason that it really exists is to showcase Michelangelo's David, which is considered the pinnacle of sculpture. Now, I'm not really an artist, but you know, that's everything I've read about it. And when you see it, it is impressive. It's 15 foot tall. You can see the sinews, the veins, the, the detail. And one little interesting side note is when Michelangelo was going around trying to figure out, you know, what block of marble to use, he actually went through a, a, a junkyard for marble. I guess in Italy, you know, your arts and, you know, you have junkyards for marble. And he saw a block of stone. It was like, man, there's no way anybody could do anything with that. And Michelangelo was like, no, I can do that. I, I, I can see David coming out of that stone. So anyway, that's a whole story in and of itself. And when you come into the gallery there, you're, you're looking down a long hall, and you see David at the end of it. And, you know, we sort of scattered out, you know, different things catching our interest. And, you know, Verinka and Catherine were over to the side looking at something, and my mother and her husband were off, and I was sort of standing there in the middle of the gallery. And, and you know, David's down at the end of the hallway. <clears throat> and as I began to walk towards the statue, I looked to my right, and I noticed that there are some blocks of stone there that are sort of low on the ground. So I sort of bend over, and I'm looking at the first one, and, and to this day I have no idea why they're there, why they put them there. I can speculate, but, but they're there. They were there that day. 
And when I'm looking down at that stone on the first one, I can barely see an image etched in the surface. Just barely etched in the surface. Can't even tell what it is. It's, it's even grotesque looking. And as I move closer to David and I, and I look at the next block, there's a little more of an image of a face that's coming out of it, of a figure. And as I move closer to David in the third stone, I can actually begin to see an image coming out of the stone. But nothing compared to David. They're grotesque. They're marred. You can barely tell what's there. It's so jumbled up. You know, what is this? And while I'm standing there in the middle of that gallery and thinking about all these things in my life that are haywire and what's going on and up and down, north and south, there's a voice that says to me, the problem with you, Gordon, is that you see yourself as these blocks of stone, and I see you as David. The problem with you, Gordon, is that you see yourselves as these blocks of stone, and I see you as David. I saw myself as so disfigured, so marred, my life so messed up, so hopeless. And God's got a vision for what my life is supposed to look like and who I'm supposed to be and where I'm supposed to go and what I'm supposed to do. But as long as i got my head in the sand and as long as I'm trying to decide where my comfort zone is, I never get to see who he wanted me to be. What a comforting thought that you come from God, that God is intimately involved in your life, and that at the end of your life, you return to God. He sees you for who you are and who he wants you to be. What a beautiful thought that you come from God, you're with God, and you return to God. You are not what you think you are. You are what God has defined you to be. Stop thinking of yourself as something that is worthless and, and is cast away. But think of yourself as an amazing, incredible, and beautiful thing. The Jesus who being in very nature God came and humbled himself to death and even death on a cross to redeem you and to let you see yourself as the image of God that you were created to be. It's amazing, it's marvelous, it's scandalous. Stand and sing this song with us as we reflect.